Even while still reeling from their disappointing performance in Tuesday's election, Republicans are bracing for more turmoil as they prepare to likely take over the House of Representatives with the thinnest of majorities. Instead of celebrating the election results as he had expected, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy is now facing serious unrest within his ranks, threatening his prospects of taking the gavel from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi when the new Congress convenes January 3rd. And even if he does ultimately prevail, how much power will McCarthy actually have? And what should we expect from a Republican-controlled House in which the hard-right Freedom Caucus has new power? We'll talk to one of the reporters most plugged into the House GOP caucus, Julie Grace Brufke of the Washington Examiner, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So look, before we get into the weird internal dynamics of House Republicans, uh, we should take a step back and point out there is still a lot we don't know as we tape this Friday morning. There are still lots of outstanding votes in Arizona and Nevada. It looks like there's a good chance that Mark Kelly, the Democrat, will pull it out in Arizona and a 50-50, maybe better than 50-50 chance that Cortez Mastro does in Nevada. If they both do, that will make Georgia irrelevant in terms of control of the U.S. Senate. The Democrats will maintain control. But before we get into what all this means, I just want to point out that the really sorry state of our electoral process in this country. In Arizona, here we are going into the weekend, 20% of the votes have yet to be counted. In Nevada, 12%. And then you look at some of these California districts. California 9, only 36% have been counted uh, three days after the election. In California 6, 26%. I mean, look, in Brazil, they just held, held a presidential election in the entire country and they counted the votes that night, the night of the election. In France, they did the same. Some states like Florida could count all their votes within hours. And yet you get these states uh, like out west where they seem incapable of doing a vote count in real time. This is the kind of thing that breeds conspiracy stop, theories. Mike, stop, Hold Mike, on, stop spreading conspiracy theories. You're just spreading breeds conspiracy, conspiracy theories. theories, promotes uh, litigation. The longer you draw it out, the more likely you're going to get lawyers finding something to file lawsuits out at a time when American democracy was already having its uh, issues in terms of our future. The idea that you get this electoral chaos days after an election seems crazy to me. Crazy. Mike. Yes. It's 
It's not chaos, first of all. It's systematic and orderly counting of ballots. And just because it takes time doesn't mean it's wrong and doesn't mean it's chaotic. Doesn't mean it's wrong. To begin with, but no, to, to begin with, Mike, when you point to Brazil and France, what you're not dealing with is the fact that they've got uniform federal or nationalized election systems. The United States has 50 different election codes and every state does it differently. The major difference between places like California and Pennsylvania, et cetera, is that they use a substantial number of mail-in ballots. The counties and the state is not allowed to pre-canvass or evaluate the mail-in ballots until election day. And processing and dealing with mail-in ballots takes longer than dealing with in-person ballots, which are automatically scanned in. The reason it takes longer is because we've got extensive and very effective anti-fraud and anti-double voting techniques for mail-in ballots. That means every mail-in ballot has to be individually evaluated for whether or not everything was properly filled in, whether or not there's a signature, whether or not there's a date, whether or not the voter is properly registered. So it takes it takes longer. Victoria, and why can they do it in Florida, but they can't do it in Nevada, Arizona, or California? Because every state has different timelines in which they allow the boards to be able to begin pre-canvassing the mail-in ballots. For example, in Pennsylvania, the election boards are not allowed to even look at a mail-in ballot until 7 a.m. on election day. In Florida, in contrast, they are allowed to begin looking at the ballots well before Election Day, so they're able to process them and evaluate them and qualify them to be counted long before Election Day, which enables them to run it quickly. That's the major difference. It's just the timelines and the deadlines that the state states set for when the ballots can be evaluated. So the and, states you know, need and, to reevaluate and well, follow well, Mike, the Florida when you get example. Your magic, when you get your when you get your magic mm -hmm. wand that allows you to force state legislatures to act rationally and do the right things, then we'll have a different conversation. But the point is that, Mike, many state legislatures have intentionally, intentionally created this precisely for the purpose of sowing this doubt and discord, because they like the fact that there is a so-called red wave, and they they know that they can sow the chaos and sow the doubt about this. Victoria, like California seems the worst right now. That's a Democratic-controlled state. They didn't rejigger their, their electoral process to benefit a red wave. So all I'm saying is there's a better way to do this, and there will be, I, I can predict right now, there will be real reassessments in those states and people wanting to change the way election voting is okay, counting. Okay, Mike, two things. There are always yeah. better ways of doing it. I will, right. do not disagree with you in the slightest bit about that. But right. I do disagree with you that the fact that it takes long equals chaos or equals you know doubt or equals suspicious results. Well, Second listen of all, to, regarding California, the issue in California is the issue in California yeah. is that they only recently shifted to all mail-in voting, so they haven't been able to adjust appropriately for volume. I think the California legislature is probably going to try to figure out what this is. Arizona. Right, so we're in agreement. <laughs> we're in agreement. <laughs> yeah. We'll end this yeah. this uh, lovely debate, uh, yeah. but I have one just question for <laughs> this Victoria. This detailed debate about like election law. <laughs> My one yeah. question for... I think a lot of people who are, you know, of, uh, you know, in, you know, not quite golden age years, but, uh, <laughs> but a, a, a little, a little bit older than I hope some of our audience Watch it, doesn't, uh, yeah. <laughs> they don't, don't remember, you, you know, or don't remember the elections 
ever really taking this long. I mean, it kind of started in 2000. But the main reasons for that seem to be twofold. One is what you've been talking about, which is we didn't have mail-in ballots to the same extent at all uh, back then. But also we have parity in this country. So elections are closer than they've ever been before. And when they're closer, it takes longer. Aren't those the the, the main reasons why uh, why this is happening? And then the legislative changes that you talked about. Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right. I think that that's the, the those are the two main reasons. But I think I, I would also add, as you pointed out, that um, a lot of states have kind of, in some cases, rather intentionally created systems that that do this. And I think that there's a there's a fourth point, which is that our election system is chronically underfunded. And and so we don't actually spend the amount of money that we need and we don't, you know, devote the resources that we need to elections. Just we spend literally more on Halloween costumes every year than we do on the administration of elections in America. And considering that, you know, elections are these, you know, so that's basically the the big problem. Well, given how spooky elections have become, <laughs> maybe that's a <laughs> All right, uh, let's move All right, on. Because what we haven't talked about here. Okay, Mike, I, I, I won that debate. I'm just saying it. <laughs> let's, let, let's let the skullduggery listeners decide that. Yeah. You can tweet at, at us. You can go comment on Well, that's only because you cut me off. I would have had plenty more to say. But um, anyway, all right. Look, <laughs> Write what it down does in your calendar all... once in a blue moon. <laughs> what does it all mean for the future of American democracy, the future of the republic for Joe Biden, for Donald Trump, who's going to announce for president next Tuesday, even though all his candidates got or most of his candidates got clobbered on Tuesday night last week. And a lot of election deniers who we were all worried about got defeated as well. So I think that's a, a, a small thing to say, or maybe not a small thing. It is a thing to celebrate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you looked at the total numbers, because I think the New York Times did this, of, of election deniers who actually got elected, it, it's actually a pretty significant number. But in terms of the the most high-profile election deniers and those who would have, if elected, controlled the election machinery, that, that is a significant number who, you know, who went down. It looks like Mark Fincham in Arizona, the Oath Keeper running for Secretary of State, he's likely to go down. Uh, he's an actual his, Oath Keeper? <laughs> I, didn't I, I, I believe so. I, I don't know if he's a oath current or friendly, former, but, but as opposed uh, to it. No, I think he was if an he actual was a real Oath Keeper. Oath Keeper, oath keeper he'd be curious. on trial for seditious conspiracy well, I, I don't think he, in Washington, D.C. right he now. Didn't, he, didn't, he didn't come to, uh, to Washington. But Jim Marchant in Nevada, who is also a, uh, a, a rabid election denier, looks like he's going to go down as well. And then, of course... You know, some of the governors who are election deniers, I mean, you look at Pennsylvania, where Doug Mastriano, who was there on uh, January 6th, lost. We don't know about uh, Kerry Lake. And then there were a lot of uh, people who ran for Congress who uh, actually showed up on January 6th. Most of them lost, but some of them actually won, including I think there was a former uh, Navy SEAL captain in Wisconsin, who was there on January 6th, and he won his election. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. But in terms of the big names, the people with real influence in swing states that matter in presidential elections, most of them lost. And I think that is something that uh, we can be um, happy about. 
to go back to your question, Mike, about uh, about Donald Trump, I think we can say with almost 100, maybe even 150 percent confidence that guy's not going away. He may be uh, chastened by the results of this election, but there's no way he's going away. There's no way he's not going to uh, pivot and do everything in his power to continue to main control, maintain control of the Republican Party and of its fundraising apparatus. The real question is, to what extent is the Republican Party, and in particular the House caucus, ready, willing, or able to begin to resist Donald Trump's efforts? Yeah, and I'm not wildly optimistic about that. I just want to Remind people in our last episode, I, I quoted a, uh, a Republican consultant uh, talking about how livid he was about um, uh, Trump's role in the election. He blamed uh, Trump for the defeats of the candidates in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, in Georgia. It's uh, at least not Walker, not getting over the 50 percent hurdle. And he said he was disgusted and then insisted on being uh, off the record on it or on background. He didn't want his name attached to it, which says to me that there is still that fear out there. Now, there's some, you know, uh, cracks on this. Uh, the um, lieutenant governor of Virginia, Winsome Sears, who was you know pretty viewed as pretty hard right, uh, just uh, went on TV this morning and said there's no way she could support Donald Trump again. She blamed him. You had the lieutenant governor of Georgia, Duncan, saying something similar the other day. So you get some out there, but I think probably not enough. Donald Trump is an incredibly resilient politician, and he has come back, maybe not from criticism that's quite this acute, but he does have a way of, of coming back. And I think the issue here for Republicans and for someone like Ron DeSantis is if he wants to put a dagger in, in Trump's heart, he's going to have to do it now. He can't afford to wait. They need to take on Trump now uh, because otherwise he will bounce back. Remember, I mean, all How he How do needs- you put a dagger in his heart? Other well, than you got indicting him, and even that may not be. Yeah, to it. yeah. Well, you got to just take him on, and it has to be persistent, and um, you can't stop. I, you know, I don't know. It's a good question, but if you don't do anything, then then he is gonna come back. You know, in one of his you know nine lives, and just remember, Donald Trump. Even if his supporters uh, diminish to uh, to some extent, uh, you know there are going to be those hardcore supporters who are going to be even more hardcore when they see the establishment Republican Party coming after uh, coming after Trump. And by the way, a lot of them will view uh, Ron DeSantis as a member of the Republican establishment, not as a an American first politician. So if Trump still has 25 percent of the Republican Party who are very much in his camp, you know, he can make a lot of trouble for anybody out there who is uh, hoping to get ele- any Republican ho- hoping to get elected. And if Ron DeSantis defeats him in a Republican primary, he can make a lot of trouble for for Ron DeSantis if he tells his voters not to vote for him. That could be putting a dagger in Ron DeSantis's heart. So I wouldn't expect Donald Trump to, to fade away at all. It'll be really interesting. I'm still down in Georgia where we've got a runoff coming between Warnock and Walker. Um, I stayed this long because I thought that the runoff would make a difference for control of the Senate. It may not. So less will be riding on the outcome. But um, one interesting line of speculation out there is um, whether we will see 
Trump, DeSantis, and Kemp, who just got reelected, all appear on stage in a Herschel Walker rally during this runoff coming up in December 6th. I don't know that, that the dynamics are there for that to happen. I don't know about Trump going down there. I mean, he'll want to. He'll want to, and Walker may want him, but um, you know, his strategist will probably tell him it's not a great idea. And then Kemp will not be on a stage with Trump, I don't think. I don't see that happening. So, I mean, those conver- boy, to be a fly on the wall. Yeah, you know, I was just saying, I would buy, I would buy, I would buy, I would buy tickets to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, just a couple of, uh, you know, we're going to get into in a moment, uh, Kevin McCarthy and uh, all the troubles he has as the possibly presumptive new speaker. But Nancy Pelosi, what does she do now? Assuming that the Republicans have a three or four seat majority in the House, does she hang on? Does she stay as minority leader? I don't know. I think one of the things that a lot of people tend to underestimate about Nancy Pelosi or or misapprehend about her leadership of the Democratic caucus is that the Democratic caucus wants her as leader. It's not just that she wants to be leader. It's that the caucus wants her as leader because she's effective and good and knows how to kind of deal with and and modulate all of the kind of conflicting forces between, um, between and amongst the members. And until the caucus itself begins to see or coalesce around someone who they believe has this kind of similar skill set, Nancy Pelosi will be able to stay in that place if she wants to. That's different, incidentally, than the way the Republican caucus handles its leadership fights right now, because the Republican caucus has like no consensus on who they actually like and who they want to help kind of modulate all of the conflicting forces within it. So, you know, for, for the sake and for the future of the Democratic caucus, there's no doubt that they need to be able to find the inheritor or the next person to take on the leadership from Nancy Pelosi. But the truth is, until they find that person and feel confident in that person, Nancy Pelosi gets that spot for as long as she wants it. And so we're looking at a Democratic Party that will be led by an octogenarian president, an octogenarian speaker, and uh, an octogenarian majority leader, Steny Hoyer, who's likely to stay on as well. Not the best look, I, I would think, for a party that wants to appeal to young voters. Well, Mike, the party just very successfully did appeal to young yeah, voters no, with exactly no, those leaders. So Fair point. Fair point. Look, before uh, we get to our guests, I do want to bring up another issue. We do try to stay ahead of the curve here on Skullduggery. And last week, uh, we had former Twitter executive Vivian Schiller on talking about the new Elon Musk-led Twitter and uh, in which she said that Saudi dissidents should think about getting off the platform given that the second largest investor in Twitter is Prince Al-Walid, a member of the royal family, um, pretty much at this point controlled by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And given the, the past Saudi attempts to, and successful attempts to steal personal data of Saudi dissidents, how safe should Twitter users feel about using the platform at this point? 
I wrote a story about it and got pushback on Twitter saying, oh, come on, just because uh, a Saudi prince is a major investor in Twitter, you know, it doesn't mean he's going to be able to uh, have access to uh, the cell phones and uh, uh, personal data on, uh, on, on Twitter users. Today, the Washington Post dropped a story, U.S. officials weighing whether to open a formal investigation into Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter's as new details emerge about the privileges granted to large foreign investors under the terms of the deal. Experts uh, said uh, the, on the foreign review process, what will be of particular interest will probably be, be whether any of Musk's foreign investors would have special privileges to access personal data about Twitter users. According to people familiar with Musk's purchase, those who invested $250 million or more have access to information beyond what a lower level investor would receive. This is strikes me as a really big deal, that the idea that a foreign power, one that has a history of assassinating journalists and jailing dissidents and um, doing all sorts of nasty stuff might get access to data of people using Twitter who criticize their government. So, Mike, I want to parse that uh, that language really carefully because sure. um, I'm not sure that the story says that they get special access to user data or to personal data. It, it says doesn't they say, get, yeah. And, but, and it would not be in the slightest bit unusual for a, a high-level investor in a company to get rapid access to financial data, you know, basically, you know, a lot of uh, data about income, you know, kind of on a more regular basis than a another investor might get. But on the other hand, given the history, as you pointed out, there's and the, the kind of the cryptic reporting about this issue, it certainly is something that uh, that people should be kind of yeah, and and about. what got what got me uh, you know worked up on this is I did a lot of reporting last year for the Conspiracy Land series we did on the Khashoggi murder about the uh, Saudi corporate espionage plot to infiltrate Twitter and the uh, one of the principals in that uh, just got convicted in federal court this past summer of receiving hundreds of thousands of bribes from his Saudi handler who was the personal secretary to MBS to turn over personal data. And given uh, Prince Al-Walid's own association with MBS, he had been imprisoned in the Ritz-Carlton and then came out chastened, agreed to a financial deal that gave that ended up giving the, sov the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund a substantial chunk of his company, uh, Kingdom Holdings. I think this is um, reason to be concerned. But anyway, uh, let me just make well, yeah, just sure. one, one, one other uh, quick point here which is that CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, the agency that would do this review, is not only going to be interested in the Saudi investors, but they'll also be looking at uh, potential Chinese investors, uh, the Qataris, uh, uh, and the Qataris, right. and, and and they and you know the story, the Washington Post story pointed out that they might actually be even more concerned about China because of the China is a strategic uh, competitor uh, and rival in the way that Saudi Arabia uh, isn't and. 
Elon Musk, of course, um, has a lot of ties to uh, the Chinese with Tesla, um, and there there is a a company that has a very significant investment um, in in Twitter called I don't know how to pronounce it uh, Binance, uh, it, which is a cryptocurrency exchange that was founded in China, has since moved away from China, but has a five hundred million dollar investment in Twitter uh, under Elon Musk. So that's just something to keep an eye on as well. That being said, you know, millions, if not tens or of millions of Americans have already turned over vast quantities of personal information TikTok. to a, chi- a Chinese owned company called <laughs> yeah, including, TikTok. Including my daughters, including yeah. my daughters. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I still have my Twitter blue check mark and I haven't given Musk a dime for it. So uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Anyway, um, we've got a good guest to talk about uh, what's going on in the House GOP caucus, uh, something we should all be following in the coming months. So let's get to it. We now have with us Julie Grace Brufke of the Washington Examiner. Julie Grace, welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, thanks for having me. So quite a wild time for the House Republicans uh, still, you know, uh, having their massively disappointing performance in the Tuesday elections. Uh, We still don't know exactly what their majority will be if there is a majority, but it looks like it's going to be very small and a lot of turmoil within the Republican ranks. In fact, you quoted one source today saying that uh, it looks like the House Republicans are have a circular firing squad going on right now. Explain the dynamics of that firing squad and what it means for the prospect of Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House in January. So, I mean, I think I I was at Kevin McCarthy covering his victory night party on Tuesday where he went on at 2 a.m. after his party was supposed to end by midnight and gave a three minute speech where I think he I'm not sure he totally had a speech prepared for the outcome of the election. I mean, I asked him, are you worried about your speaker's bid then? He was like, no, not at all. But uh, I mean, I guess you kind of have to say that if you're him. But the Freedom Caucus is pretty, pretty quick to to uh, pounce on these narrow margins and they've got a huge list of demands. I mean, they want to make it easier to vacate the chair to be able, which they used to kind of try to push Boehner out. They um, want better committee positions. They want more power on the steering committee and they want to be able to slow down the legislative process and have more amendments. And I think the real, I tell you the red line for them is the vacate the chair, uh, which McCarthy's definitely not on board with given. Uh, Why is that so important? Explain. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, they would like to kind of have that hanging over his head that I, I think. But that, what does uh, what vacate the It means they can the remove him, right? It means a vote to remove him. It's a mechanism that would um, allow them to oust a, a sitting speaker and would make that entire process easier, which uh, clearly he doesn't want. And he's looking for the rules package vote to happen before the leadership elections, which is another big sticking point. But a lot of these guys, I mean, especially because a lot of these races still haven't been called and they don't know the final margins. Chip Roy was saying yesterday they really don't think it makes sense to have the leadership elections closed door next week. So that's also going to be an issue for him. Is this about these members of the Freedom Caucus just wanting to have leverage to get some of these, extract some of these promises from him? Or do they think they have a legitimate shot of uh, defeating him as speaker? And is that what they want? I mean, I talked to a few of them yesterday, and they definitely are pretty adamant they want to put somebody forward to challenge him. I mean, but if you look at the election results, a lot of the moderates kind of fared better. Some of their, uh, I mean, I feel like Trumpism seems to be winding down. He's getting a lot of the blame for things. So if they put up a particularly Trumpy candidate, I, I just don't see 
a scenario where that, that plays out well for them. And the, the Freedom Caucus is also divided, right? Because uh, you've got people like you know Jim Jordan who are backing him and, and is, I guess, going to be, uh, w- you know, would be um, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, I mean, I think McCarthy might be banking on the support of Jim Jordan a little more than he should. I talked to Scott Perry yesterday, who's uh, said he's called McCarthy a few times and McCarthy hasn't answered any of his calls. And I mean, if I'm Kevin McCarthy, that's the first guy I'm calling because that's going to be the first guy that's trying to buck me out of the position I want. So, I mean... It's uh, it's kind of interesting. I know he's been making individual phone calls. He had a phone call with a bunch of members earlier this week trying to kind of tamp down concerns on the numbers. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's got a he's got a challenge ahead of him. So it's uh, I mean, it's, some Democrats were floating yesterday. He could potentially make a deal with them. But I mean, if Pelosi stays in, in her spot, which is still kind of questionable, I don't see her getting on board with that. And I'm not totally sure what he could totally give them. I mean, better committee assignments, maybe some more minority rights on the floor, but I don't know if it's gonna, anything's going to be enough to sway them to be able to get behind him. He's got super, I think he'd be hard pressed to find Democrats to say something nice about him. Let's start on specifically who, who might actually challenge McCarthy for the leadership. I've been hearing Steve Scalise as a possible candidate. Is that what you're hearing? So I think he's kind of sitting back and seeing how things kind of play out in the next few weeks and has been uh, very quiet on things. I mean, I, I was texting with some Freedom Caucus members about who do you think that you guys will put forward? And all of them are like, we're talks are still happening. Chip Roy, who challenged Stefanik last time around, his name's been floated, but he hasn't confirmed anything. I mean, I think you saw last time when McCarthy... When Paul Ryan ended up speaker, I mean, I don't think anyone expected him to drop out of that race. He had all sorts of issues. I mean, it could be a dark horse that kind of emerges. I've heard on the moderate side, maybe everybody with the circle circular firing squad, somebody like Patrick Henry rises and ends up being tapped. So I, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I think there's going to be a lot of surprises, but uh, yeah. I mean, if I'm putting money on it right now, I think McCarthy strikes a deal and uh, it's going to be hard for him. But uh, I think that, I think a big question is how long can he stay in that role? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, Democratic uh, uh, Circular Firing Squad is a Democratic Party specialty. So this is uh, probably a, a new one for the Republican Party. Are you hearing anything, uh, as you, you mentioned, whether or not Nancy Pelosi was going to stay in place? Are you hearing anything about what the Democrats' plans are? I mean, I think every Democrat I've talked to, it seems like Hakeem Jeffries is the big name if uh, if, if she goes to kind of take over that position. I know that Adam Schiff has expressed interest in that position it's still unclear if she goes, if Steny Hoyer and Clyburn leave. So I think Clyburn said on TV the other day that he wouldn't stand in the way of Hakeem if he tries to move up move up the ladder there. So, I mean, a lot of questions on that side. But, I mean, I think if they manage to pull off retaining the majority, I, I'd be skeptical that Pelosi would give up that gavel. And I feel like there's few people that kind of have her prowess to be able to keep members in line that could be able to kind of legislate with that narrow of a majority. So you've talked about the concessions that the hard right Freedom Caucus is demanding here, like, you know, motion to vacate committee assignments, that sort of thing. But what about substantively, legislatively? What do they want? What do they realistically think they could achieve in a divided Congress where they clearly couldn't get any legislation they pass in the House through the Senate, if they could even get legislation passed through the House? When you talk to them, what do they talk about? What do they what do they describe as their ambitions, their goals? I mean, some of them is that I mean, with their issues with McCarthy, they feel like he hasn't leaned into helping them enough along the along the way where he's been running for speaker more than working with them. But um, 
I mean, they, they were complaining yesterday about him tamping down. They wanted to potentially try and impeach Mayorkas, which he's kind of shut down or impeach Biden. And I, uh, I mean, I know Matt Gates has already been making calls, pushing against him with a very serious. We shouldn't be voting for this guy. Whereas I think some I think there is kind of a split within the Freedom Caucus of how much can we leverage and other people that just want to get rid of him. But is that is that just I mean, beyond impeachments, which. Oh, don't I mean, go, couldn't go anywhere. Ceiling, it's it. going to be a living hell for Kevin McCarthy if he pulls it off. And so the, it's the debt ceiling to achieve what? What kind of cuts are they demanding or are there priorities for a debt ceiling? So, I mean, I was I was told they're going to lay out more priorities probably early next week. So they've got their list of kind of overall rules changes demands, but everything they just kind of broadly said they want to move things to the right. So it's uh the specifics. I mean, it's so nothing specific. I mean, well, you know, yeah. well, Nation, nationwide reform. abortion ban. What, what are we yeah, talking I mean, about? Definitely all things that have been floated, but uh, they, they haven't really laid out like specific demands legislatively. They just. I feel- mean, look, look at this past midterm campaign. Their strategy was not to lay out a big policy agenda, right? I mean, they were like the generic part. That they were the. Uh, Vote for, brand, vote for brand X, you know, just back to the Julie Grace, back to the leadership fight in the, on the Republican side for a second. What about the Trump factor? To what extent is he going to play a role in this? Um, how strongly is you know, he, he he's going after McConnell, but is he backing McCarthy? Does that right now, does that help him or hurt him? And um, and then Trump is we expect to announce his run for uh, the White House in 2024. How does McCarthy deal with that? Does he endorse Trump? I mean, all of these, it's all gotten a lot more complicated since the election. Oh, it definitely has. I mean, so Trump came out, he told Fox News on Tuesday that he was endorsing McCarthy for speaker before the results. But clearly, I mean, every report we've seen, everyone in Trump world is just saying that he's kind of having a meltdown down in Mar-a-Lago. So, I mean, could he turn on McCarthy and blame him for these results? Easily. I mean, you never know. He'll turn on people on a dime. We've seen that over and over and over again, which could be a problem for him, especially with the far right, especially with people like Matt Gates and his ear already pushing uh, against McCarthy. I mean, I feel like that could definitely be a factor. Enough people throw him under the bus to Trump. You see that come out. But I, I mean, I think a lot of people aren't real thrilled with Trump and the primary candidates he picked. And so whether that's a factor, I mean, I think it's a factor with the far right. And if it's that thin of a margin, he can he could have a huge impact. It could be a huge problem. So the the Republican leadership, especially uh, Republican leaders of uh, speakers of the House for the last decade, has been a uh, a very unstable position, let's say. Uh, Whoever gets that post faces an enormous amount of uh, pushing and pulling from various wings of the party. So if McCarthy does become speaker of the House, does he last longer than a head of lettuce or is he going to... is he going to be out in a matter of six months or essentially uh, unable to govern his caucus, even if he is technically the speaker? I mean, I think governing his caucus, I mean, I've talked to members for years who have said that, I mean, McCarthy likes to be liked. He promises people a lot, sometimes under delivers on things like promises on committee assignments. And I mean, I think that whereas Pelosi and McConnell kind of know how to crack the whip, he's I mean, he's very affable. He's a very friendly guy, but I, I don't know that he garners the same level of respect where it, it's going to be difficult for him if he pulls it off. But, I mean, I think governing with those margins is hard, but I, keeping everyone happy is really hard. So we've heard a lot about investigations and you mentioned impeachment, but to the extent that we can get granular at all, like what specifically 
they want to investigate, what they specifically think they've got some material that could be productive here. What is it? I mean, I, you know, Hunter Biden, I assume, but beyond that, where should we expect to see investigations by a House Republican controlled committees? And, you know, do they have anything remotely like an agenda for this? I feel like the, the biggie is definitely Hunter Biden. You hear about that on oversight. You hear about it on judiciary. I was talking to Michael McCall. I feel like Homeland with whether or not he had ties with China, like inappropriate ties with China, that that sort of thing has come up. But I, I feel like uh, Afghanistan is going to be a biggie that they want to look into and the handling of that. That's that's the other huge one. And then uh, origins of COVID, which they already kind of had their select committee, but I think they're going to keep carrying that out. I think for, Fauci is going to be kind of their other big target. I'm wondering, with all the committees that want to do the Hunter Biden investigations, I mean, is there talk of a select committee in which McCarthy can then decide what Democrats could be on and which ones can't, just like Pelosi did with January 6th? So I got a call from uh, Sebastian Gorka a couple of weeks back being like, Matt Gates is recruiting me for a select committee on Hunter Biden. So they are talking about a select committee. Uh, I think it's just, I think he's like, I'd like to be the staff director for it. But every Republican I talked to kind of shot that down, including members of leadership. They're like, we don't know what they're talking about. So I think they're going to let Jamie Comer on oversight kind of take the main reins on that one. (laughs) But uh, I I mean, I think select committees definitely aren't out of the question on, I I mean, Afghanistan, they're definitely, they're absolutely, definitely already announced the uh, select committee on China. So that's, uh, that's definitely coming into fruition. Right. I mean, the wild card on Hunter Biden is, are we going to see an indictment before January 3rd? If not, I fully expect, uh, you know, Merrick Garland is going to have to have make repeated (laughs) visits uh, and get subpoenas and demands for documents like why hasn't he been indicted so far? This could get very tricky. Uh, it's it's going to be wild. It's going to see. It's going to be interesting to see how a lot of this stuff plays out. But yeah, I think expect some fiery hearings for sure. So a lot of these investigations are obviously really backwards looking. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a legislative agenda. For example, do you anticipate that the Republicans are going to come out of the gate with anything like a plan to address inflation? I mean, we think we saw that with the whole commitment to America. Here's our alternative agenda, which was kind of an outline, but didn't really lay anything out on how they were going to do it. So, I, I mean, I think that's one of the big complaints. I, talking to Chip Roy yesterday, he was like, we haven't really seen a plan from anybody, which was, he's like, before I commit my vote for speaker to anybody, I'd like to see a plan on how we're going to address this. But it's easy to say you're going to address inflation. You're the party that can address inflation. But I mean, if they do manage to pull off both chambers, it doesn't really seem like there's a plan there right now. Julie Grace, just for the benefit of our listeners, and frankly for myself, who don't know the ins and outs of a speaker election, um, how, how does this work exactly? How does it play out over what period of time? There's a, as I understand it, there's a there's a private vote and there's a public vote, and they're not always the same. So talk about that a little bit. So then next week, I think Tuesday, they're all supposed to lay out their speeches for all the different leadership positions. Whip's also been, like the brace for Whip's also been kind of a fiery... Uh, a fiery race. So they'll do Tuesday, they'll kind of all lay out their pitches for that. And Wednesday are the scheduled closed door leadership elections with closed ballot. And then January, um, shortly after the GAD, it'll, uh, that'll be the floor speaker vote where it's kind of everything's on the record. And I, I talked to a Democrat yesterday that was telling me that a group of Democrats were discussing this 
they're watching McCarthy struggle potentially on the floor voting for Liz Cheney, hoping to try and get a couple Republicans, which I think is a long shot. I feel like uh, I can't think of one Republican right now that would be willing to vote for Liz Cheney since you don't have to be in Congress to be speaker. But uh, an idea that's being floated out there, which I found to be kind of interesting. Right. At one point, they were talking about voting for Trump to be speaker since you don't have to be in Congress. That's certainly not going to happen anymore. So how chastened are they by the results of Tuesday? When you talk to them, how do they explain why they did so poorly relative to what was expected? And is there any sort of reflection on maybe we have to change our messaging or maybe we have to change our agenda? Oh, I think almost all of them were shocked. I mean, uh, I would be surprised if McCarthy had more than one speech written for Tuesday, given that he came out at 2 a.m. and gave a three-minute So when you speech. talk to them, what, what kind of reactions do you get? I mean, I think everyone was pretty shocked. I um, I mean, I had talked to people a week before everyone's like, all right, we're saying 15, 20 a couple of weeks ago, and they're like, I think 30 to 40. I mean, a year ago, you heard McCarthy saying 60 seats, which I feel like he's probably regretting those comments at this point in time. But uh, I mean, I think that uh, on the leadership, you've heard Emmer and McCarthy kind of pivot. It's like, we took the majority. It's historic. Gerrymandering changed things. So it's uh, definitely a pivot on messaging on their end. And obviously, they're both looking for uh, leadership spots. But um, but how do they explain why they did so poorly? I mean, I think you talk quietly. I've talked to a lot of a lot of members and they feel like the Trump factor and quality. I mean, candidate quality is a big thing. I mean, how Sand Senate, I mean, you look at Abigail Spanberger, where I mean, she was I think Republicans will tell you a, a good candidate. And she was running against a woman who was out there saying it's harder to get pregnant from rape. But I, I don't think that sits well in a moderate district. And I mean, you look at Herschel Walker, where everyone kind of thought Georgia could have been a runaway thing on the Senate side for Republicans. And I mean, it was kind of just scandal after scandal. And you saw everybody else on up the ticket in Georgia kind of running away with it. So it's uh, I, I think candidate. I, I mean, you've heard Mitch McConnell say candidate, candidate quality has kind of been their big issue and kind of pointed fingers at Rick Scott there, which has also been kind of an interesting dynamic, given that Rick Scott came out, I think Politico wrote this morning, was planning on challenging him for, for leader. More of a circular firing squad on the Senate side as well. Yeah, I feel like you're, they're usually less dramatic on that side. I feel like the House is usually where the chaos is, but... Got it on both yeah. ends here. <laughs> the, the the problem with with Rick Scott's plan, it, it looked good in, until he uh, until he, until Tuesday when like it looks like he's probably going to lose the the Senate for Republicans and his jo- his like main job was to hold the Senate, so that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think people were really mad about how they spent money and kind of ran out of money toward the end there. So it's uh, and I think if they do pull it off, McConnell's going to be able to pull credit, uh, be able to take credit for that for kind of pouring money into a lot of these races and helping them over the edge in the end. And if they end up losing it, it's easy to point fingers at Rick Scott. A couple of uh, members whose uh, I'd be curious what their uh, role will be in the new Congress: Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, I mean, I think McCarthy's talked about putting her on better committee assignments. So I think uh, she wasn't on any committee assignments. I thought she got kicked yeah. out. Right? Yeah, so they, yeah. she Anything got is better. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. So after she got booted last time around, he was like, we'll put her on better committees. So, I mean, if you kind of look back in the day when like Michelle Bachman was placed on Intel, uh, I, I think maybe there's some kind of thought of like, maybe we give her something to keep her busy and like really get into and delve into. And maybe she'll kind of tamp down the firebrand. Image there. Wait, are they actually thinking about putting Marjorie Taylor Greene on Intel? 
I haven't heard <laughs> intel, but putting her on committees that she wants, I think, is judiciary uh, was the one that I thought that uh, she wanted or oversight, right? I mean, yeah, so it's, she's, uh, she's uh, hot on that. I mean, there were rumors of a potential leadership position for her, but I, I don't think there's there's teeth behind that at this point. One person we haven't mentioned so far, Elise Stefanik. And I'm kind of curious how come nobody's talking about her as a potential rival to McCarthy. But I think a lot of people were. So she, right now she's running for conference chair again. I think if she had had the votes for WHIP, she uh, probably would have run for WHIP and ended up not. And so if you don't have the votes for WHIP, I feel like taking on McCarthy. I don't think the Freedom Caucus trusts her. She's former chair of the Tuesday group moderates back in the day and then kind of pivoted toward Trump, where I think there's still kind of a level of distrust there. And right now she's got Byron Donalds, who's in the Freedom Caucus, challenging her for conference chair. I, I don't think he pulls it off, but I think it'll be closer than she's going to like. I love this. Are you now or have you ever been a moderate? And we'll dig into somebody's past to find evidence that they attended moderate study groups in college. And <laughs> she, know, uh, the new McCarthyism. Her angling to be Trump's right. VP, and she endorsed him earlier this week, put out a whole statement. Or I think it may have been an op-ed in Breitbart. So, I mean, her pivot has been one of the most interesting to watch from kind of the darling of the moderates and Democrats' favorite Republican to where she's at now. But uh well, but just because I asked that question before, the, the you know, who endorses Trump when he, assuming he announces on Tuesday, what is the calculation there? Do you think that, uh, it seems to me before the election, you know, you would have gotten a whole slew of endorsements mm -hmm. as soon as he announced. Is Do you think that uh, some Republicans are going to be more cautious, hold back their endorsements? Oh, for sure. And I think a lot of them are pretty pissed off about his comments on Ron DeSantis. And I think a lot of people see him as the future. I mean, Florida is where Republicans kind of really performed there. And I mean, he was going after Glenn Youngkin this morning. And I don't think that's sitting well, even with the far right. Tell us what he said about Youngkin. Uh, it was kind of amusing. Um, Ooh, he was, uh, young kin kind of sounds yeah. Chinese. No, <laughs> I don't think that's I don't think people a lot of people would find that amusing, Mike. <laughs> All right. So, well, I it's Trump. Lunacy, I mean, they've got a Republican slow. Congresswoman, Young Kim, who's a Korean American, who's got a similar name. He's pointing that out. I mean, I think Republicans have kind of made gains with Asian American voters. So it's kind of interesting. He's kind of taking taking on that rhetoric. So I can't imagine that helps him in 24. But it's uh, yeah, I, I've got to check in with some members on that. But I can't imagine anybody's real thrilled. Well, let's let's actually uh, that, that's an interesting point, because uh, it raises the issue of the unexpected good story for Republicans in New York. If there was any state where Republicans overperformed and surprised people, it's in New York where they picked up a pretty substantial number of seats, possibly exactly the number of seats they needed to hold the majority in the House. And. Some early evidence seems to indicate that part of that pickup was driven by the increasing ability of the Republican Party to attract Asian American voters. So I'm I'm curious whether or not there's any kind of discussion within the Republican caucus right now about whether or not New York is their formula for success. I mean, it's fascinating. I, so I was traveling around with Scalise right before the election around New York, kind of just on the campaign trail, tagging along with him, covering him. And I mean, the enthusiasm for Republicans in New York, I feel like was shocking. And I feel like nobody expected Lee Zeldin when he first hopped into that race for that to even come close to where he managed to land. But I mean, yeah, I think all, all the New York members I've talked to were like, I, I think it's more of a purple state, state outside of New York City. And 
I think some of their messaging on on crime really resonated there, which was helpful to them. And I uh, yeah, I think that's definitely an area where they're going to continue to dump money into and try and make gains in future cycles. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, Asian American factor, which is interesting. I'm actually from a town on Long Island in Nassau County. When I was growing up, it was all Jews and Italians. Today, I understand it's like 40% Asian American. And they just voted for Nassau County, elected two Republicans in the House. Just back to the moderates for a moment, though. Are there still moderates in the House Republican caucus? And who are they? Obviously, Kinziger and Cheney are gone. But who's left that could reasonably be portrayed as a moderate? So, I mean, Dave Joyce from Ohio, it's no longer Tuesday group, Republican governance group. I think they changed the name to leading things there. Um, I mean, I think I think you still have a lot of uh, kind of mainstream Republicans. You've got the Mike McCall's, the Ann Wagner's out there. It's um, Dan Crenshaw. So, I I mean, I think there's still kind of a sizable group. And I think you're going to see them flex their muscle a little more. I mean, with margins that thin, I feel like the Freedom Caucus is going to be an issue for Kevin. But uh, you've got another group that will likely vote for him for speaker, but I think they're going to want things kind of push more to the middle and be able to walk, work across the aisle. Well, we will see. And uh, you're certainly going to have a um, busy couple of months <laughs> as you uh, <laughs> cover uh, the Republican circular firing squad. Anyway, Julie Grace, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks.